hi. Welcome back, everyone, to another week of Schizophrenic Reads, the podcast. This week, I'm joined by author Jamie Green, author of The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Could you give us a little introduction about what you do now, how you came up with this book idea, and and just we'll just get going. Yeah, I am. I say that I'm a science writer, an essayist. I also teach writing. I work as an editor, all sorts of that fun freelance lifestyle. And as for how I came up with the book, it was a sort of long process. So this becomes a kind of long answer. I hope that's okay. Oh, no, no, no. That's all. Okay. That's all great. So about, um, God, at this point, like 12 years ago, I was getting my MFA in creative nonfiction at Columbia. And my first semester there, one of my professors mentioned that there was a science writing group on campus for scientists and for writers, like a workshop group. And I was like, wait a second, I love science. I'm writing. Why am I not writing about science? Like it, it had not occurred to me that that was something I could or should do, even though I'd loved science my whole life. I thought about being a physics major in college, even though I had no idea like <laughs> what studying science at the university level entailed at that point. But um, I just always loved it. But I also, you know, loved theater and creative writing. And that was what I ended up majoring in. And so I was like, oh, I should write about science. And then the second semester at grad school, um, everyone in the nonfiction program had to take a research seminar, which is, you know, to learn research methods, library, writing from research sort of also helps pull the memoirists out of themselves a little bit by forcing you to write about something outside yourself. But I was never like a memoirist. So I was like, this is great. I, I want to learn how to do this. <laughs> and I wanted to write about the Voyager Golden Record, which is this little like message in a bottle type record that was attached to the Voyager probes when they were sent out in the 70s, designed by Carl Sagan, because NASA knew that the probes, after they did their mission, would just kind of keep going out of the solar system. And so there are these records, like a little message from Earth with greetings and languages and images and whale song and music and all of this stuff. And I wanted to write about that. And my professor said, go bigger, write about aliens. And I was like, well, that's a lot bigger. <laughs> that um, is a huge topic. As evidenced by this book where like every <laughs> chapter could absolutely be its own book. And so I did that and I loved it. And I was like, I want to write a book about this. And then I would do the thing that writers often do where I went to the bookstore to visit the shelf where my future book would be, <laughs> you know, and uh, there were already several versions of this book on the shelf. And they were all written by astronomers. I was like, well, <laughs> who's going to want, you know, little old essayists version of this book? This book already exists. And at that point, you know, I was thinking I would write a book about the search for life beyond Earth and the science of it. And that book just existed many times over. So I put it on the back burner for a while and was writing about other things, was doing some other science writing, writing essays, criticism, all sorts of stuff. And then a few years later, a friend was commissioning some essays and she asked if I had an idea for an essay series, something to do with culture. And I said, what about aliens through a cultural lens? Because <laughs> I still wanted to write about it. And she said, yes. So one of the essays that I wrote for that series was about putting the sci-fi aliens and scientists who think about extraterrestrial life in conversation. And I just felt like I could keep writing and keep writing and keep writing. You know, it was supposed to be like 1500 words and then it was 2020. You know, I, it was, <laughs> I definitely submitted it like twice as long as it was supposed to be. And that's when I was like, oh, there's more here. And this is a different way of writing about it by writing about the science and the science fiction together. And, you know, for anyone listening who hasn't read the book, which I assume is most people listening, I'm not talking about like UFOs or alien abductions. I'm talking about, you know, life on other worlds and the scientists who are legitimately looking for that and thinking about how it might be. And so that just sort of cracked open the book for me where I was excited to write it. I had that feeling of I had a lot to say. I had a lot of questions to ask, which is like the fact that those questions drive my writing is what I mean when I say that I'm an essayist. Like it's all question driven sincere questions that I have. And practically, I saw how this was 
not a book that existed. And it was a book that I could write, a book that was not meant for a scientist to write, but was for a writer. Because there's this weird thing in astronomy where lots of the best science books overall are written by writers, by journalists. You know, in biology, you have like Ed Young and Carl Zimmer and Sabrina Imbler. These are people who are not PhD scientists. Mm-hmm. In astronomy and physics, almost everything is written by scientists. You have like Brian Greene and Carl Sagan and Adam Frank and um, Caleb Scharf and like they're also Shonda Prescott-Weinstein. So it's not all men. It has been up until recently. But like there are not, it, it's weird. I don't totally know why. It sort of makes sense for physics. Like I don't think a journalist could do what Brian Greene does. But anyway, yeah. So that's, like I said, the very long story of how this book came about. <laughs> well, I think we're, uh, part of like my review for the book is talking about how your book feels nostalgic like, it mm-hmm. feels like with science books, we, there was almost, like, two phases. And I'm just talking about, like, in the recent past. But mm-hmm. it seems like maybe around, like, 2010 to 2015, there was a lot of science books coming out. A lot of, like, big name ones. And then I feel like we had this, like, almost, like, simmering of, like, science publishing. And then we have, like you said, like, this rebirth of journalists writing science books. And actually later today which will be the next podcast for people. I'm interviewing author Jake Biddle about his climate change investigative journalism book. Mm-hmm. And so it, it really is becoming like the the field is opening up to more than just, you know, PhD students and, <laughs> and postdoctorals. So it's really become like a fascinating thing. But like while reading this, I just felt like so nostalgic for the books that I went, you know, that I was like, I was, you know, in junior high or junior in high school and picking up just like random science books at Barnes and Noble. Cause it's just like, it sparks this like fascination and curiosity. And part of why I really enjoyed your book so much was that it, it's not just like this kind of seeming question about, you know, alien life, but more than just like, I think the prototypical alien that we think of, but it's also just like the relationship to like how we like psychologically view these events and how we like conceive, you know, of being, the only person out there or or one of the only. And um, I really found like your relation to pop culture to be really fascinating. I'm curious with the pop culture, I have to think if you set out to write this book and this has been a fascination of yours for years, there was probably more pop culture that you even wanted to insert in this that, that didn't make it. So first, I actually want to go back to what you were saying about the book feeling nostalgic because I think that's so interesting. Part of it is definitely that like Carl Sagan is a huge influence for me and I think he's a huge influence for a lot of that science writing and it is very different from the sort of um, investigative journalism like, you know, a lot of what's going on with with climate reporting right now. It's a not whimsical, but it's like about sparking wonder. Although I think, you know, that's a lot of what Ed Young does too. But it's so funny that you said it reminded you of, you know, being in junior high and that kind of reading experience. Because I wonder if it's not that it feels like the books that were coming out then, but it gave you that same kind of, it like got you back into that junior high mind open with wonder feeling. Because I get that a lot when I read sci-fi which brings us back to the pop culture because I read a lot of sci-fi in junior high and high school. Mm -hmm. And it's that incredibly pleasurable, immersive experience. And and you get that same kind of thing with science writing or sci-fi, but it's just like, is your mind being blown by your world or by an imagined world, right? And so I've read a lot of sci-fi for the book as research or revisiting books that I had read before. And I noticed some of them clicked me into that 14-year-old reading mode. You know, like when I read Embassy Town by China Mieville, which I had never read before, it was that same feeling of like feeling like it like the visual is like the pensieve in the Harry Potter movie where you like put your face underwater in a bowl, you know, and then you like come up gasping and you've read 150 pages, you know, <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is just like not how we get to read as adults or as people with smartphones and social media. So I don't know, I because I, I think that there is a continuity in science writing, like from the 2000s onward, you know, there's like Mary Roach, who's just like been doing the same delightful thing for years and years. But that's really, it's really interesting to think about that sort of like lineage of, of various influences in writing. But so 
was there a lot of pop culture that I didn't include? I mean, one thing I was very aware of as I was writing, so all of the pop culture that I include just about is stuff that I loved. Mm -hmm. There were some books that I read that fit the science well, but that I didn't love. And so I didn't want to put them in my book. The only exceptions are, I don't really love Avatar, but I wrote about it because it was just too interesting not to. (laughs) And I write about the book Solaris, which is from like the 1950s. And I loved some parts of it, but it's like very 1950s male sci-fi. And, you know, but it was the parts I loved were really important. But of the pop culture I included, I would guess it's about 50-50 of like stuff that I previously knew and loved and that inspired my curiosity and that inspired my idea for writing the book. And then new things that I knew to me, things that I found in my research, like Embassy Town, like Dawn by Octavia Butler, like Rosewater by Tate Thompson, all these books that sort of fit needs that I had in my book. You know, I wanted to write about sci-fi set on planets that are very different from the Earth. And so I found this set of Stephen Baxter novellas set on planets that orbit differently, you know. But I was also bringing in a lot of my favorites. There's a lot of Star Trek The Next Generation because that's something I love. (laughs) Um, Semiosis by Sue Burke, The Sparrow by Mary Duria Russell, which I read when I was in high school and like absolutely have that intense high school feeling about. And I really wanted to be able to include Ursula Le Guin because she is probably my favorite author, just writes the most beautiful sci-fi but she doesn't really write about aliens. She Mm. writes about basically people, you know, there are some minor physiological differences and cultural differences. And, but her sci-fi is really about understanding people. You know, her father was an anthropologist and I always see that in her work. And so I was like, Oh, none of her stuff fits. So like, she's the epigraph. And then there was like, you know, a paragraph where I worked in a mention of her heinous novels. And then I encountered this short story of hers about animal languages. And I was like, aha, this fits. Um, (laughs) And so I I worked that in. So like she's in there, but in a lot of ways, you know, the sci-fi that's in here is like a portrait of me as a reader. And it felt incomplete to not have Le Guin there. And then my editor, after I submitted the first draft, was like, where's Madeline LaEngle? This needs a wrinkle in time because that's another very important part of my DNA as a reader. I mean, talk about, you know, I was like eight when I read that and it like fully imprinted on me and like shaped so much of everything. And I realized that it wasn't a wrinkle in time, but a wind in the door had a place in the book mm. and and the book sort of ends with, with that. So yeah, it was, you know, I don't think there was anything else big that didn't fit. Everything just sort of snuck in there. I think that's pretty common for first books for a lot of people where it's like your whole life has been leading up to that book, mm-hmm. which is very weird to start a second book. So it's like, well, I don't <laughs> want this to take 13 years, but it really does have like little bits of everything. I got to tell you about my favorite uh, pop culture reference in the book, and it is because I have a tattoo of it. Um, I have a tattoo from Arrival of like, <gasps> the, the alien language. Yeah. And I have loved that. I read the short story, just mm-hmm. happened to pick it up a couple of years before the movie came out. And when the movie came out, I was literally obsessed. I like went on a Sunday morning with some friends to watch it like opening weekend. I just watched a lot of movies. And so I did. And then I, I literally turned around and I was like, the next showtime, I've got to see this. <laughs> and like, I was just, I have become like so enthralled with that story And you get into the book about it being one of scientists' like favorite, you know, stories about alien life. And I'm curious if you could kind of explain, you know, through talking to a bunch of scientists, like why it is they latch on to Arrival so much. Yeah, absolutely. So like whenever I interviewed scientists, I like to ask them if they had a favorite alien representation in pop culture and or one that they thought felt most plausible to them. And that was absolutely the most common answer. And I think it was because the alien, and they were talking about the movie. Most of them hadn't read the short story. But um, the aliens in that movie feel really alien. They're not bipedal. They're not bilaterally symmetrical, you know, like mirror image left and right. They have seven legs, which is a very weird number. Not a lot of Earth animals have odd numbers of limbs. And even if they do, like starfish, 
they're still bilaterally symmetrical. If you put, you know, one of the star points up top, you can fold it over. And I think that that really alienness, like they are the most alien aliens on film. There is, there are other books about the unknowability of aliens. Solaris is one of them. Um, Rendezvous with Rama by Arthur C. Clarke, I think, I hope, um, which I don't write about in the book is also about that unknowability. But there's not a, a body described. Like in Solaris, the alien entity is is sort of an ocean. It's not made out of water, but it's like a, a it spans a whole planet. But in Arrival, you have alien bodies. You're communicating with alien minds, but across these great distances. And I actually interviewed Ted Chang, who wrote the short story mm -hmm. for the book. I was obsessed I, with this part of the book. I, I actually was, like reread it because I was just like, I love this so much. Well, it was so funny because when I was writing the book, the way that I got my first drafts out by was a lot of was by like a lot of very like low stakes free writing where I would just like sit and like write, 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 write and sort of see where I ended up because I had to like trick myself into getting started. So I was like, <laughs> I'll just jot some notes down. And so as I was writing that section, I'm like, da, 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 da. So I asked Chang and then I was like, well, I guess I have to try to interview Ted Chang now because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't interview a lot of the sci-fi authors. I mostly was just like close reading the work and letting the work speak for itself. And I, I was able to interview him. And so I asked him, do you know what the aliens wanted? Do you have a sense of their interiority? And he was like, no, like right away. He was like, no, absolutely not. That he, they needed to be alien to him mm. in order to be alien. And in the short story of a of story of your life, we don't know why the aliens came. Like in the movie, it ends up having this whole neat reason. In the story, they just leave. They show up, they talk for a little while, and then they leave. And you <laughs> never find out why. And I think that and just like over, even in more granular ways, it was so interesting to me because the idea of like how do you imagine an alien? How do you imagine something unimaginably different from you, unnatural to the nature that we know? And his answer is you don't. You mm. can't get inside their head. And if you get inside their head, they become too human. I think that even though that is not carried into the movie exactly, they are more humanized. They're more familiar. They have, we understand why they're here. That DNA is in the story of, and the way he describes their bodies. You know, they don't have, they have eyes all the way around the top of their head area. So they don't have a front and a back. Like, which ties into, you know, their language and their experience of the world. But I just, yeah, he's very good at what he does. <laughs> well, it's ultimately like, and he kind of says it in the interview with you, but it's like, this is a human story. Like we use, yeah. we use aliens as this backdrop of, of like setting up a really fascinating look at something, but ultimately like it's a story about human beings and a lot of the best sci-fi is exactly that. I mean, yeah. Star Trek from the start has always been about like uh, human exploration and like kind of the philosophical musings about those types of things. And it is really fascinating that we're now, <laughs> I would say, we're now in an era where your book kind of came out at a very timely place. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure you knew I was going to ask kind of this question, but... We have recently had con congressional hearings about alien possibilities and one service agent or whatever exactly he is uh, has said, yes, we, we have alien life here. I just want, I, this is a very open-ended question because yeah. I'm just like, what do you think <laughs> about this? Because I, I don't know if you buy into this theory. I don't know if you're just like, this is just not real or or kind of wherever, but I just love to know you wrote this book, you spent years and years researching it and, and thinking about these questions. And then Congress has this hearing and they're like, yeah, we've had them for years. Like they're just, they're hanging out. <laughs> and I'm like, I have to think that was just emotionally such a weird thing to be like, your book's recently out in the world where you've wondered. And now here we go. It is very weird. And part of what's so weird about it is that I have no expertise when it comes to UFOs, UAPs, visitations, abductions, military. I generally think of this as much more of like a military and political thing than a scientific thing. And it's also really telling to me that 
no scientists, no astrobiologists, no SETI researchers, like the people who are in the like in the fields that are looking for signs of alien life that are trying to imagine alien life. None of them are engaging with this. Our experts are like, there's no overlap. Yeah. I don't find it particularly compelling factually because like it seems weird that they would only make themselves available to the military. But I mean, (laughs) who knows who absolutely who knows? I did see very compelling Twitter thread by a scientist who worked in radar as like a technician for a long time. And it was a list of all of the weird anomalies that you get on radar screens. And he was like, the fact that these anomalies are showing up on radar and you see all the weird movements and, you know, acceleration and whatever, he was like, that actually makes me feel more like they are just technological anomalies, like Mm. ghosts in the machine. He had this whole list of weird signals that pop up as errors in radar machinery. And, you know, I think there's analogies in SETI, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is like looking for radio signals that give us proof of technological activity on other worlds. Not for the book, but for an article that I'm writing. I was talking to one SETI researcher, Sophia Sheikh, who led the investigation into one of the like most promising SETI signals that was detected. It was actually leaked by the Guardian in like the winter of 2021 that they had got they had detected this signal. And it took them like four months to figure out what it was. And interestingly, they're never trying to tell if a signal is technological or not. You can always tell that right away. It took four months to figure out that it was actually interference coming from some sort of technology on Earth that was mimicking what a signal from space would look like, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I just, I think about how it took a team of researchers months to figure out the cause of one signal, one weird radio signal pickup. And then we have all these weird radar signals. Like, of course they're unexplained. But like I said, I think it's much more a technological, political, military phenomenon. And aliens get involved because that's a cultural story that we're familiar with. Yeah. If we didn't have the sort of like national myths of Roswell and abductions and little green men, if the X-Files had never been on the air, no one would look at that radar and say, this must be an alien spaceship. You know, it's, it's a Rorschach test and we're filling in what we know rather than actually getting that information from what's there. Do you think we're we're filling that in even more? Like, does it seem to be like a growing sense of like our pondering of extraterrestrial life and their visitations to us? It seems to be like just kind of a steadily moving thing into like wider culture because, I mean, I remember uh, this was like my favorite activity with my friends uh, was to get a little bit drunk or stoned, you know, as a sophomore in college and stay up till 4 a.m. watching Ancient Aliens. And just yeah. like, we were just absolutely consumed with what really is, you know, just trashy TV that is not based in any reality or anything like that. But, you know, it just seems like the, I think the barrier between, I think like the myth of kind of Roswell, and then we're slowly just integrating it more and more until finally like we have a congressional hearing, which is like the most kind of concrete, like, oh, our government is actually talking about this it's not just like myths and legends or or silly tv it's like oh no it's like becoming more reality and entering more homes like it's just we're talking about it more often i I guess just do you think like what does that say about us or or kind of is this a good thing i suppose like that it's just a continually growing conversation i don't know why it's picked up over the last few years i mean i know like Practically, why is that the military has been putting out reports of unexplained aerial phenomena, you know, and the New York Times had a series of articles about it. So it got a lot of attention that way. But I don't know why that shift has happened in the military, you know, in terms of reporting things and paying attention to them again. I think that was big in the 50s and 60s and sort of quieted down. But in culture, 
I don't know if it's good or bad. I feel cautious about it when it starts influencing people's understanding of science. Mm. It's sort of how I feel about astrology. Like, I think astrology is a lovely way to make meaning in the world, to understand yourself, you know, sort of like tarot cards, where like, I think tarot cards can be a, a great reflective tool. But when people start saying that astrology is scientifically founded, that the relative positions of the planets in the sky changes something materially about us. That's when I'm like, well, it just, it can't like it can't, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> and when people start thinking that that is a science, that, that that is a science, you know, it really troubles people's understanding of what science is and how science works and what inform, like how to take information from science, like what to do with that. So that's where I start feeling cautious and that's, I think, where a lot of scientists start feeling cautious as well, which is why in my head I, I sort of separate it from science because it's there are not scientific investigations. This is like a you know political military investigation. I want to kind of depart from this a little bit and talk about just something fascinating that I found because it's 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 also just a break from normality in some sense. But you did your MFA and you now kind of a science writer which is not the typical MFA route. It feels like nonfiction MFAs almost always lead to narrative or, or like self essays about the self or just mm -hmm. strictly memoirs and becoming a kind of like getting into the technical fields instead of the, you know, the personal fields. What was that kind of like journey like? And like, is it one that you, I think maybe would like recommend for more people is seeking out writing programs to get into other fields and stuff? I'm just curious what you have to say about that. Yeah, it's funny because like on the one hand, that's absolutely true. Like most MFA nonfiction people are not writing science, but I guess because it's self-selecting, like one of my best friends from the program is largely a science and nature writer, writing a lot about climate and like Heather Radke, who wrote that fantastic like cultural criticism book, Butts, a backstory, which if you haven't read it is which like- Which was so fun. It was, it right. was just a wild time. She also- came out of Columbia's program. Mm. So, and and I feel a lot of kinship with her work. We didn't overlap in the program, but like that sort of just like going out into the world with curiosity. So the way that it worked for me was, like I said, in my first semester, I was tipped off to the science writing group on campus and decided to bring science writing into my creative work and found that very fruitful. Like as a writer, I was like, oh, this is awesome. Um, I love doing this. It's interesting. I'm learning a lot. And one of the requirements of Columbia's program, which I will just say, could you ask, like, would you recommend people in general approach writing this way? I loved getting my MFA. I loved Columbia's program. I cannot in good conscience, rec conscience recommend that anyone go to an MFA program that is not fully funded. Yeah. Going into student loan debt, as I did, for a creative writing degree is <laughs> unwise. If you have family money, God bless, go for it. But like, don't go into student debt for an MFA. Okay. So one of the requirements of that program was that over your two years there, you take one class outside the writing program. Mm. People would take a language class or um, you could take classes in the journalism school, which I also did a little bit. But the semester that I was doing that research seminar, I took an undergrad astronomy class on exoplanets and astrobiology to get like, the, and, and actually my microphone is sitting on the textbook for that class <laughs> right now. And the professor very, very generously let me in, even though I couldn't do calculus, I could understand enough calculus to follow the lectures. But I, I was like, I, I took calculus in high school, but I cannot do the math, but I had been an SAT tutor. So I could do all, I could do like the algebra and all the other math. And he wrote me short answer problems when there were calculus problems. I later <laughs> found out that he is also a writer. So he like understood. Oh, so he was, he's like but really like yeah. doing what he could to help you out. <laughs> but it was just like such a tremendously generous thing. Mm -hmm. And so that gave me a scientific, a, like a foundation in the science. And then I don't remember how I heard about this, but there's a website called Astrobytes where that is run by grad students, where grad students write summaries of new research papers in astronomy aimed at an undergrad audience. So the idea is like if you're an undergrad physics or astronomy major, you can keep up with 
current research and learn about the different things in astronomy. And it's run and staffed and written by grad students. And it doesn't specify that you have to be a grad student in astronomy or astrophysics. I was a grad student in creative <laughs> writing and I applied and got in. And so I wrote for Astrobytes for a couple of years. At this point, I had taken a science journalism class also. So I like had learned how to like process a journal article because like scientific writing is so, can be so dense and challenging. And, you know, was in my science writing group, which is called Neurite because it was founded by neuroscientists. So I was just like immersing myself in all of this. And so I wrote for Astrobytes for a couple of years, which continued to give me that sort of foundation in the science. But then after I finished grad school, like I applied for internships at Scientific American and things like that, which I never even got a phone call. And I'm definitely <laughs> still a little bitter about, but I found it hard to make science journalism part of my career and not the whole thing. Because mm. I was doing other kinds of writing. I was teaching. But you have to be really immersed in it, I think, and stay connected to the research and the beat. Like once I wasn't writing for Astrobytes anymore, I kind of had trouble keeping up with it. And so it took me a few years to come back to writing about science and figure out the way that I would do it, which is not as a science journalist, but as an essayist and taking everything that I learned in my MFA, the influences that I read, um, like Eula Biss is a big, big influence for me. Like people don't, it's shifting, but like, and I feel a lot of kinship with Sabrina Imbler with this, where they, even though they, they identify as a journalist, like their writing is about making meaning from science, mm -hmm. not just reporting the facts. And so I, I brought that approach to the book. And um, I do think that having training as an essayist in creative writing I don't know. I mean, you don't need it. It's like a different kind of writing. But I also, I always say that like the most I learned about writing, I actually learned from teaching first year composition, not from my okay. classes. But, you know, like being exposed to a lot of creative nonfiction, writing a lot of creative nonfiction, you know, being exposed to it in readings and in workshop from my peers. I definitely think that it's valuable in an MFA program to write beyond yourself. I think that if you are going into an MFA program as a memoir writer, especially if you're young, recently out of college, that turning the camera outside is really important as well. And you can learn a lot. And I don't only write about science. Like I still write personal essays. I write craft essays, you know, all sorts of things. But I'm really glad that I found my way to writing about science not just about what the science is, but with a lot of reflection about what it means and a lot of freedom to be playful in structure, in tone, to bring myself into it. You know, I'm not scared of the first person. So I, you know, it worked for me. I'm happy with the writer that that path made me, but it's definitely not the only one. I have to be a little bit selfish in asking this question. I'm currently in the process of working on my own book about living with schizophrenia. And it's also, it's, it's kind of personal, but I want to talk about like the broader cultural and like the scientific. And so it's, you know, it's both and a little bit with this mm -hmm. one. And I'm just curious knowing that, you know, you've done the MFA and done the personal and done the scientific. If you just, what would be like a point of advice for me? Like, is it, you know, how much to read or, or just, you know, revision, revision, revision. I'm just curious if there's, you know, maybe any point in it that you saw your own, you know, during your own process of writing your book, if like there was a moment that sticks out to you about an advice that you can give to, you know, first time authors trying to break into, you know, kind of similar tones in their writing. Yeah, I'll, I'll say two things. One is don't wait to be finished with your research before you start writing. Mm. I spent like the first six months of quote unquote working on my book researching and just sort of wandering around <laughs> through the research <laughs> and um, was starting to get very anxious about my deadline. And so I did Jamie Attenberg's 10,000 Words of Summer. Are you familiar with that? I'm not, no. Okay. So Jamie is, um, she's primarily a novelist, although she's now written essays and a book about craft. Um, and she started this thing called 10,000 Words of Summer, where it's sort of like a NaNoWriMo boot camp, but for anything where you commit to writing a thousand words a day for 10 days. Okay. And at the end of that, you have 
10,000 words that you didn't have before. And people, and so she does this like a couple times a year. So there's that kind of community, just like with NaNoWriMo, Mm. where there's a newsletter she sends out. There's a Slack you can join people, at least before Twitter completely imploded, were sharing their word counts on Twitter, you know, and it's, I found that, so, so I did that while I was still researching, like, I, but I hadn't like written words yet. And it was great because it was so low stakes. So my deal with myself was that I was still researching, but at the end of the day, I would write a thousand words. And sometimes they would be reflections on the research they that I had done. Sometimes they would be like a pre-first draft. Sometimes they would be me thinking about the work I was doing and the book and like that very meta writing. It was fantastic. And and there are things that I wrote there that found their way into the book. And there's a lot of that that went into the garbage. But just to say that like, <laughs> oh, look, now I have 10,000 words. I'm a big believer in like very low stakes writing that you can't worry about if something is good while you're writing it. That is mm. the fast track to writer's block that you have to write a low stakes first draft and then see what you have. And you can make discoveries through the writing. And I did. I like made connections. I figured out what I thought about things through the writing. So my first piece of advice, if you're doing researched work is use writing to process the research and don't wait until you feel done because also doing the writing will show you what other research you need. I think that's a, a, that's a really great thing. And it's something like I'm currently battling with Mm because, you know, I, I read so much and that's kind of like my whole internet persona is like, I'm just constantly reading and reading books that, you know, could be helpful for like research along the way. And as much as I've read, I'm so intimately aware of how much I haven't read. You know, whenever whenever I'm reading a book on schizophrenia and they reference another book, I'm like, oh, I got to read that before I write another page. Like, and it's like, yeah, and especially just... like if you don't, ha- if you're writing about a subject that you don't have an academic background in, which is something I don't. I have degrees in theater and creative writing. <laughs> Ugh, I took that one astronomy class. It can feel very intimidating, but and I very often found myself wishing that I could like do a dissertation in science fiction studies before writing mm. this. I just wanted like to read. Every everything, but you can't. And so I really had to embrace the idea of it being good enough, which is something I take from parenting. I have a four-year-old and one of the most helpful ideas I've encountered about parenting is Winnicott, I don't remember, I think Donald, but Winnicott's idea of the good enough mother, that your child doesn't need a perfect mother. And it's actually unhelpful to have a perfect mother, but they just need a good enough mother, right? That like, There are all sorts of reasons not to aim for perfection. It doesn't exist. It sets up false (laughs) expectations. It doesn't exist, right? And so I've tried to bring that into my writing, both on the day-to-day, on the amount of research I can do, and for the book, that like there is no perfect book. There is no enough research. You just Mm. have to do good enough. You have to do enough research to write a first draft and then see what's next. And for writing, like... Each of my chapters is in a different discipline in which I don't have an academic background that could be its own book that people have hundreds of PhDs in. (laughs) So I couldn't wait until I found the perfect expert to talk to. I had to find a couple good people to talk to and see where that led me. And that shaped where the book went. And if someone else had answered my email and someone else hadn't, the book would look different. But sort of being really let all of this comes around to letting go of perfectionism, whether you think you're a perfectionist or not, that like you just have to give it a shot and see what happens, which is like the other thing that I firmly believe in is the power of revision. I, in my teaching, encountered this idea from some academic writing about composition studies that one of the things that differentiates novice writers from expert writers is that novice writers are trying to write the best draft possible. They're trying to get it right. Whereas expert writers look at revision and revision is the thing that differentiates spoken language from written language, that you actually can revise and develop and come back to it and build it not in real time, not linearly. And expert writers use revision as an opportunity to do something that they couldn't do in one go. Mm. That it's a collab. This is an idea from Matt Bell, who has a, a book about writing novels called Refuse to be Done. That writing a book is a collaboration between many iterations of you. It's today you and tomorrow you and yesterday you. And together, all of those versions of you are collaborating on something that you cannot do. 
It's beyond your individual capability, but only through the very long process of writing and revision are you able to make this thing. And I think I, I think that's beautiful. I think that it really reflects my experience of writing and it inspires me to revise a lot and to really do that collaboration between all of my different selves. I love that because I think the 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 thing I'm honestly stuck with is like uh, approaching this first book is like, I can't even get to the next chapter because it's like, I don't, I can't send this one off to the editor or, or, you know, kind of whatever like mental barrier there is along that way is like, you just feel very confined to like trying to form the exact perfect book. And, you know, intellectually, you know, like that's no author actually achieves that, you know, like very few, I mean, I'm talking like one percent. Maybe Stephen King has written a book that he doesn't hasn't done a, many revisions on. Yeah, but, but like then that aside from that, a lot of cocaine. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. No, it's just it's a really fascinating thing, and there's always just I think the um, when you talk to authors, and, and and as I've been doing it more often, it's so fascinating to see like kind of the same realizations that authors have had along with like writing their first book and their second book, and how like that process goes and. And how honestly, like very almost universal that pre first book is like when I've talked to my other friends, like thinking about writing a book, like we've all kind of felt the same way about having the perfect first draft or like doing the amount of research. And it's just um, it's these kind of like initial intellectual barriers that you have to like overcome, which is a fascinating thing. Like through the whole process of writing this book, I felt very insecure that I wasn't doing enough research that. I was going with, like I said, you know, the first three people to answer my emails or the first book that I found that worked for a given chapter. And a lot of the response to the book has been calling it deeply researched. I'm like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that also like that's a I'm not saying don't try to research deeply, but our sense of what is deep enough research Mm -hmm. is probably unrealistic. It's impractical and it's also unnecessary and that we can sort of, you know. I wish I could remember the name of the theory, but it's that like the idea of that actual competence is knowing how much you don't know. And like mm-hmm. incompetence is typically just like an over-exaggeration of like your abilities or your knowledge and stuff. I always think of like, I literally like picture the graph in my head that like does the like the whole downturn of like where expertise actually is and stuff. And it's just yeah. a really fascinating thing. And it's really hard to be like, well, if I don't, know things, does that mean I'm good enough? Like it's, you, you, it's a very, um, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance about it where part of what I love about writing is what I don't know and learning and figuring out and problem solving, figuring out how to put a chapter together, how to connect to ideas, discovering ideas, creating ideas. Right. But that means that you are in ignorance. A lot of the time and you are wandering around and feel like you don't know what you're doing. And I say wandering around, I mean like, you know, wandering in the desert, <laughs> wandering lost in the woods. That's the the image that I'm I'm pointing at. And so it requires the word that came to mind is humility. And I don't know if that's actually right, but it requires a lot of comfort with not knowing. Or mm. I know it's you're never comfortable, but it requires a lot of surviving, not knowing. Mm. I do have, I, I have a, like a personal question that I, I kind of always want to ask authors and, and and like sometimes I get chickened out, but do you have a favorite part of your own book? Like, was there a part in it and maybe not the, the completed project, but maybe it was like the research that went into it or just like how consumed you were with the ideas, but just because you wrote, was it seven essays? Six. Six, sorry. In the book, that, it's, it's six chapters. Yeah. Yeah. And they all kind of, you know, take different approaches to this like larger question and stuff. But was there one that you were just like, this is, this is really where it's all at, you know? <laughs> I have a couple. I absolutely have a couple. So one is the like first chunk of the last chapter, which is about how we imagine making contact with aliens. The first chunk is about the book and movie contact and actual SETI research. And when I was maybe copy editing or proofreading the book, I was reading through that section and there's a way that the structure works where it moves back and forth between the movie contact and the actual SETI research. And I was just like, Ooh, I like how I did that. I don't re- <laughs> And I was like, I have no idea how I did that, but I really like it, which is unfortunate because I would love to be able to do something like that again. But I just really, as a reader was like, nice. And then, you know, speaking of the ideas that came to me in free writing in like low stakes writing, 
In the section where I'm writing about Octavia Butler's book, Dawn, which I read for the first time for when I was writing the book. In the free writing, I came up with a way of interpreting the sort of like world building of the book, the aliens that she's writing about in terms of you can read it as if she's saying that they come from a world that doesn't have Darwinian evolution, which is like what I'm writing about around that. And I don't know if that's an interpretation that other people have come up with about this book. It felt like the one like really like original insight in terms of like literary criticism that I made in the book. (laughs) And I just feel very proud of that because it really relates. It connects it more to what I'm writing about. And I think that I don't know if it was intentional on Butler's part at all, but I think it is a very like sound reading. And so I um, was proud of that as well. That's fascinating. Because I have to think, I mean, this is uh, this is a thing that you work so hard on and, and spent so long on that there's just like, I think when approaching like my book, I'm already thinking ahead of like, oh, this is the part that I'm like, I know I'm just going to like, there's going to be like an obsessive part of me. of like, mm-hmm. I gotta, I gotta spend more time. But are you working on something new? Is there is there a new research project going on for some idea? And, and if there is, would you like to share just like broadly about kind of what you're thinking? I'm at the very, very beginning of like figuring out what that would be. So I'm not going to I'm not going to name it sort of out of superstition and also because I'm not even <laughs> sure that it's going to go anywhere. But yeah, that's fair. And always my last question is about what you've been reading, what you love during your research project, or uh, just some books that you've just like always loved. I'm just curious what book books you would recommend to me and the audience and uh, take that as open-ended as you want. I'd just love to know. Yeah, um, I'm going to, I've I've been lucky to be on a run of reading some really great nonfiction lately. So I'm going to just share those. Um, not to brag or make anyone jealous, but I just last night finished reading an early copy of Leslie Jameson's new book that comes out in February. I'm sorry. (laughs) I am obsessed with Leslie Jameson. I am so excited for this one. It is Um, so My copy should be here soon. I haven't haven't gotten it yet, but I'm like, I'm just like literally every day checking the mail. I got the e-galley because I wasn't (laughs) sure anyone was going to mail me one. I read it in two days. It's I'm, I, I want to like talk to you about it after you've read it because it's, <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. So not that anyone needs to be told to keep an eye out for that, but. And for anyone that doesn't know, this is, this book is Splinters. It's a new memoir by Leslie Jameson who has written, in my opinion, some of the best nonfiction books to come out in like the last 10 years. I mean, just yeah. absolutely yeah. incredible writer. I love her book, The Recovering, which is like mm-hmm. such a huge, hefty nonfiction book that interweaves personal and research yeah. so beautifully. Some others, I mentioned Butts by Heather Radke, which I think is fantastic and so much fun and really great on audio if people like books like that. I also loved Monsters by... Claire Dater, which is like, it's criticism, but it also has a strong vein of memoir in it. Just gorgeous, fascinating, really blew me away. I like could not put it down. And I also recently listened to, in sort of older books, the audiobook of The Great Quake by Henry Fountain. It's about this massive earthquake in Alaska in like 1964 that allowed scientists to finally figure out plate tectonics. So you get the geology and the sort of social historical story of the earthquake leading up to it and the aftermath. And it is just astonishing. The research, the humanity, the way that he tells so many individual people's stories around this devastating earthquake, the fascination with the science. And I also just love plate tectonics as a scientific concept where it's like, When we learn about it in school, it's just like, yeah, this is how the earth works. That's it. And it's such a recent discovery. It's such a recent consensus. Mm. It was like the late 60s was when there was finally scientific consensus that this is how the crust of the earth works. And that like blows me away. So I, I was really excited to learn about how that consensus came about. That's so fascinating. I've been recently kind of learning. Uh, this is not for research. This is just because I yeah. have my brain and stuff. But I've been learning more about uh, volcanoes recently. Yeah. And, and then done some documentaries and some reading and, you know, just all that type of stuff. But, yeah, finding out about, like, tectonic sciences is just, like, 
like younger than my parents, like just like a wild would not have uh, thought that like that is like going into it was just like and like the like the study of volcanoes is like 50 years old and it's just like mind blowing to me like this is how it is. Yeah. Well, because we also like, you know, in elementary school, in science books or whatever, we see all the cross sections of the planet and like, you know, I can picture the little cross section of the (laughs) volcano. That's all inference. Like no one has seen that. It's all scientific inference of like how things move, how hot they are, how dense they are. It's really, really fascinating the way that these that this knowledge is attained because you can't, it's not something you can look at under a microscope mm. or work out and predict with a mathematical equation. It's like sort of in between. So it, but that is just like a real stunner of the book. I literally, I laughed, I cried <laughs> like while I was listening to it. I just, and it's like so gripping. The one other book, speaking of like nonfiction books that have no right to be as gripping as they are. Um, <laughs> Which the is my method. favorite, like, genre. Like, that's right. just, like, like the- So, The Method by Isaac Butler, which is, has the best subtitle ever, which is um, How the 20th Century Learned to Act. It's a history of method okay. acting. And Isaac is a friend of mine. But this book is so fascinating. It moves from, like, Russia and Stanislavski all the way through modern Hollywood. And it is a page turner, which, like, why <laughs> that's so funny i recent like i le- i literally just saw this book like recently and i was like i don't know much about this like this doesn't seem like this doesn't seem like my like go-to pick but your review is making it jump up that list <laughs> and like i granted like i said i was a theater major in college and i've like acted so i was interested in it from that side and isaac and i have been friends but i don't know anything about film or like mid-century hollywood and there's a lot about that but mm-hmm. like Hollywood is such a part of American culture that like, you know, theater, unfortunately, is not. But (laughs) it really there are there are reference points and anchors and sort of handholds for any reader. And it is fascinating and just like a really fun, engaging read. Great. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for all of these recommendations. And thank you so much for spending an hour with me talking about your book. I really enjoyed it. I think people should pick this one up. And uh, I'm curious where, um, if you would like to let people know where they can find you online. Yeah. In theory, Twitter (laughs) and Blue Sky, but Instagram is definitely safe. My username for everything is Jamie Elise, which is my first and middle name. So it's J-A-I-M-E-A-L-Y-S-E because my parents spelled my names weird because they wanted to make life (laughs) challenging. It builds character. But yeah, those are are the places to find me or, you know, jamiegreen.net is my website. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jamie, for coming on the podcast. Go check out Jamie's book, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash schizoreads. And this podcast is edited and produced by Tone Support. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. (laughs) 